right, Mark chapter number one. We're going to do one more little introduction here, kind of uh, technical, and uh, this this evening, so that we can. Uh, we'll, again, we'll be gone the next couple weeks. Then we'll be back, and then we'll just start right on one one and get rolling. But uh, just uh, another, it's just some technical things here as we start with uh, the book of Mark so that when we get into it, it, we don't have to deal with them and so forth. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And uh, what happens is, is uh, technically... Uh, here as we begin to kind of get into the chapter, you'll notice that verse 1 ends with the semicolon, and then verse 2 says, as it is written. So the gospel that Mark is going to be talking about is what the prophets had predicted. So when then, then he says, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger. So he's going to quote Malachi 3 verse 1. Then verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Make us. There's Isaiah 40, verse 3. So in verse 2, he's talking about the messenger. That's going to be John the Baptist. Then in verse 3, the voice there, that's the message. That's the message that John the Baptist is going to, to preach. So we have the messenger and the message that's, what the prophets have been saying is going to come talking about the Messiah. Now, if you'll notice verse 2, as it is written in the prophets. Now, the technical issue here as we begin, Mark, is that all the new versions, all the new Bibles, they make the point here of as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. That's how they say. And then they will quote Malachi 3. And then they quote Isaiah 40. <laughs> so they, they make a little bit of a thing here. Now, Malachi 3, come on, come back to Malachi 3, just so you see it. Malachi 3, verse 1. Because, I, again, when we go through this in the doctrine, in the verse, the verse, the verse, um, we, we will see some more here, obviously. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall come, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom he delighteth in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, that's the quote there in Mark 1, verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before thee. Now, you'll notice something in 3, 1. He says, he shall, shall prepare the way before me. So you have a, Mark changes it from me to thee. And there's doctrinal reasons for that change that we'll get into more as we get in, into it when we start the verse study. But what Mark is doing is he's going to identify the Lord Jesus Christ as the Jehovah in Mark Malachi 3. So there's going to be an identification issue here that Mark's going to say, you see this guy? That's the same guy they're talking about, the same guy. So the quote, clear, the quote clearly in Mark 1-2 is from Malachi 3-1. By the way, every reference Bible, any Bible that's got a center column on Mark 1 verse 2, on the word behold, has a letter on it, and you know what it says? Malachi 3-1. Yet in the script, in, in, in the text, they'll say, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So you, you got to scratch your head there. Now, come over to Isaiah uh, chapter 40. Here's the quote in verse number uh, 3 of Mark, Mark 1 verse 3. Isaiah 40 and verse number 3. Isaiah 40 and verse number 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
And in, obviously, Mark 1, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And again, we'll talk about the little variances as we go through the verses. I just want you to see there's some things going on here technically. By the way, in, Mount, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, when he says, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, there's what's called the King's Highway out there in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament. And it's the path that Moses led Israel up into the, uh, as they wandered around in the wilderness 40 years. But as he gets them to the promised land to go in, and then as, as uh, Joseph takes them in there, uh, Joseph, did I say Joseph? It's Joshua. I'm sorry. <laughs> I get that. It's one of the guy, one of the J guys, okay? As they goes to take him in there, then what hap- as as they do that, then that is the king's highway then ultimately ends up being the route of the second coming of the Lord. He picks up on that and comes in as well. So don't let that highway for our God be missed. It is very significant. Now come back to Mark 1. So the new Bibles sit here and they say that it should read, as it is written in, the, in Isaiah, the prophet. Now, the question is, obviously, by the way, clearly it's not. It's in Malachi 3, and it's in Isaiah 40. The question then is, is why would they change it? Uh, what, what would cause them to change the reading from prophets because there are two that he's quoting, Malachi and Isaiah, to just saying to read Isaiah, all right? Well, a couple things here. First of all, if, if, it's in, if it's Isaiah, as it is written in Isaiah, then obviously there's something wrong with Isaiah, because we didn't find it in Isaiah, we found it in Malachi. So then either Isaiah is incomplete or Mark is a lie. Okay? This passage is clear. When I deal with people about the Bible issue, I always bring them right here to Mark 1 because it's right there. It's so, it's, it's uh, what do they say, clears the nose on your face. It's right there. Now, notice in 1-2 it says, as it is written. It does not say, as it is spoken by. Now come back with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Because in Matthew 27, Matthew chapter 27, when we were here, I'd look at verse number 9. Matthew 27, verse 9. Sorry, I walked off to get my, my comparative... Bible because this has got like 10 different versions in it. Mark 1 says in the American Standard, he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. NIV says, it is written in Isaiah the prophet. The NLT, the New Living Translated, says, in the book of the prophet Isaiah, God said, uh, the message, which is always a fun thing to read, he says, uh, following the letter of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, uh, the CEV says, uh, as it is written by Isaiah the prophet. The new century, as, it is ri- as the prophet Isaiah wrote. Now, the new King James says, as it is written in the prophets, with a uh, little footnote that says, the NU-text reads Isaiah the prophet. Now, NU is the, West, the new Bible, the West Cotton Hort grant. So they're going to footnote it for you so you can figure out which one it is. By the way, in verse 2, all of them that carry a note on there, like the NIV does, guess what it says? Malachi 3.1. <laughs> Uh, the, NL, the New Living Translation has a f- uh, footnote, Malachi 3.1, and in Isaiah 43 on verse 3. So they all footnote it right. Even the in New King James footnotes it right, cross-references right, I should say. But uh, they get it wrong in the passage. So anyway, so on a technical evening here, I guess, 
By the way, notice it says, as it is written. It doesn't say spoken by. If you look at Matthew 27, look at verse 9. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they, uh, uh, whom they of the children of Israel did value. So, when we went where we were in Matthew a couple months ago in this section, we talked about this issue of this is spoken by. Now, where that quote for Jeremiah is found is in Zechariah 11. So run back to Zechariah 11. Zechariah 11, and uh, <clears throat> it's verse 12 and 13 and so forth there about the 30 pieces of silver. But the verse says it was spoken by. It doesn't say it was written by. Now, if you're in Zechariah, come back to chapter 7, because it's a very interesting thing here. Chapter 7 and verse 7. Zechariah says, Should ye not hear the words which the Lord had cried by the former prophets, and in prosperity, I'm sorry, when Jerusalem was inhabited, and in prosperity, and the cities thereof round about her, when men inhabited the south and the See how Zechariah says, shouldn't the words of the former prophets? Well, that would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're all there when they're carried off into captivity. So Zechariah, ha he knows and understands what Jeremiah said, and he wrote down in chapter 11 what Jeremiah said. So when you read Matthew 27 here, when, where the Lord is speaking, Jeremiah said it, Zechariah wrote it down. But Matthew didn't say that Jeremiah wrote it down. He just said, Jeremiah said it. Come back with me to Jude. Great illustration of this, Jude 14th. Jude 14th. Jude 14th. So what this is called in, script, in study is the law of subsequent narrative. Jude 14, Jude writes, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute, and off he goes. Well, where do we find Enoch? We find him in Genesis 5, but in Genesis 5, we have nothing of what he talked about, just the fact that he's the great-granddad of Noah, you know, in this big, long line here. So what we see here is what Jude tells us, that Enoch actually said some things, prophesied some things in the days of Noah. So the idea that Noah was the only guy standing around at the time is not always accurate, at the end, he was, because what did God do with Enoch? He took him up. He didn't go through the judgment. He took him up. So when you come back here to, to Mark 1, when they begin to, again, Mark says, as it is written, not spoken. So the written text in Isaiah is missing something. Or the text in the New Bibles are wrong. That's the one it is. Or Mark is wrong. So there's, and by the way, there's no way. <laughs> Only in a King James Bible are you going to get this information. It's, it's startling when you come to the New Bibles. And this is the contemporary parallel New Testament. I, don't, <laughs> I got an Old Testament too, and it's like that big, you know, where they parallel these Bibles out. But the question is, is why do they do this? Why do they change it from, as it is written in the prophets, to written in Isaiah the prophet? And the answer that you get from them is rather messy. Because what they'll say is, is well, some of the manuscripts say prophets, some say Isaiah. So we had a guy come along a long time ago, and he found this little manuscript, and it was real difficult to read, so he made it Isaiah so it would be easier to read. And you begin to see the circular reasoning of religion and theology. 
And the assumption in that, by the way, is that God the Holy Spirit made a mistake. And man had to come along and fix it. And that's the bottom line of all textual criticism. Is, is just the fact is, is that, well, God the Holy Spirit made a mistake, so we know better and we had to fix that. And in rea- and reality is, is that when you come to the book, to the Bible, it's not a book of human wisdom that's been transmitted down through time by human means. It's rather God's word. It's his wisdom. And he has the mechanism. You, know, you think about Shakespeare or Cicero or some of the old, the old philosophers, you know, uh, Plato and all those guys. See, that's man's wisdom, and they've, they've passed that down the way they do. God said, well, 2 Timothy 3.16, we know the passage, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So when you come to this, and what the textual critics do, they do it here in Mark 1. By the way, they're going to do it again here in Mark 16. We'll get over there. Is that they don't believe their Bible. That's the bottom line. The different, by the way, the difference between Roman Catholics and then Protestants, whether they're liberal or conservative, is not do your, does your Bible have mistakes, it's how many mistakes does your Bible have. And you listen to McCart- John MacArthur, Chuck Stanley, all these guys that are conservative in their, you know, or they're liberal, modernist, and you know what they do? They all say the book has mistakes. The difference is, is in how many they count. How many mistakes do you have in your Bible? And they say Mark 1 here is a mistake and we need to fix it. And again, if you don't understand that the King James Bible is the word of God in our language, then all, and, and all the verses that should be in it are in it, And all the verses that should not be in it are not in it. And that it's been translated in the proper means, the proper manner into English. And if you don't understand that, then what ends up happening is you flounder. And then you'll say, well, it's not really, we really don't have the Word of God. And what ends up happening then is you impact negatively you, I was watching a movie the other day. Oh no, it wasn't a movie. It was Mash, and and Colonel, the Colonel, uh, the guy at the end. I uh, can't think of his name. It just had, huh? Harry Morgan. Harry Morgan. Yeah, the Colonel. He gives Radar a cigar, and he says, Radar says, "Will this stunt my growth?" And he goes, "Well, you're already, you know, pretty much short, <laughs> you know." So they have a cigar, and it's Radar's first cigar. Well, if you if you don't believe you have God's word, you stunt your growth as a believer. You can't move forward. So what happens here then in all of this is you end up saying that there's a mistake here, so we have to get it right. And I'll be honest with you, the only people who believe that we have the perfect word is really those that stand with the King James Bible. That exposes then all of the error out here. And they, guess what? They don't like that. They don't like to be exposed. Come back with me to Psalms 33. In 2 Timothy 3 there, verse 16, he says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It came from God. It didn't come from Psalms 33. I, just a couple things about this. It comes from God, not human viewpoint. It can't, it, the word, all scripture, script, the written word, has come from God speaking it. Now look at Psalms 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them, by the breath of his mouth. There's a great definition of inspiration. You hear people say, inspiration, God breathed. Well, there he did. God breathed out some words. 
and those and he, and he causes those words to then be written down in a book. Hold on here to Psalms. Run back with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11. It's very fascinating when you think about this. Hebrews 11 and verse 3. And you think about creation and what, he's, what he did there. Uh, Hebrews 11 verse 3. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Think about, how do, you, how do we have faith? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith. Real simple, faith is just taking God at His Word to you. Paul says we need to be fully persuaded. That's what faith is. Believing what God said, being confident in what He said. So faith has to so in order, to, in order to have faith, you have to have what God said. That's the doctrine of inspiration and preservation. Thus we believe and trust in those doctrines. We understand them. We understand how he wrote his word and then how he preserved his word. All of the scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's his word. He wrote it down. And it's sticking, it's, it's coming along. Come over to Isaiah. Uh, by the you, you still got Psalms 33? All right, hold on to that. Hold on to Hebrews 11. And run over to Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30. So just, again, just kind of, I know it's Wednesday night, it's Bible study. I'm just bringing this kind of back up into your mind. Isaiah 30, look at verse 8. Isaiah 30. God tells Isaiah, Now go, write it before them in a table, note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. He's going to write it down. Why is he to write it down? To, so it will be there forever and ever, to preserve it. See? So Hebrews 11, verse 3, thinking about, we're going to write this down. He says there in verse 3, 11, 3, about creation being, we understand that the worlds were framed. Well, what does Psalms 33, 6 say? He spoke, right? Told you to keep it. That's, this is why. <laughs> Psalms 33, 6 by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You can let that go. Go back to Hebrews 11 there. He framed it. When you frame something, you put it together. He spoke words. And the words come out, the breath of his mouth. He spoke it. And, and if you think about creation, if you ever want, I don't know if you ever think about these things. I do from time to time when I'm studying it, but how does an atom stay together? You know, the splitting atoms and all this. How does an atom stay together? Well, God wrote some laws. Man knows now laws of physics and science and so forth. But God wrote the law so that it would do what? Stay together. So it would, we would have what we needed to have this. People argue about gravity, you know, and the earth spinning. Well, God, there's a law of gravity that God wrote, put it in, and Job, he calls it the ordinances of heaven. He calls it the All of this, and it took man, well, 1,900 years to figure it out, roughly. <laughs> Late 1,800 years or what, 1,800s or whatever, to figure some of this out. It's been there the whole time. But how did that happen? It came by his word. So if its word is wrong, then guess what should start falling apart? Everything else. Now come back to Mark there, Mark 1. So in Mark 1, verse 2, if it's Isaiah the prophet, all right, then Mark is either wrong or Isaiah is missing some, some components here, okay? Notice 
what Mark does here, verse 1. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Mark challenges right off the bat, you're either going to believe the Bible or you're not going to believe the Bible. He doesn't mix words. He doesn't, you know, spend three chapters eloquently getting things started. It is wham, bam. I told you last time, it's boom. <laughs> he says, here, this is what we're doing. Boom. So you're either going to believe it or not. And that's really what's going to happen here. They also say, by the way, come over to Acts chapter 1. They also say that Isaiah is listed because Isaiah is the big prophet and Malachi is the little prophet. <laughs> Majors and minors. I'm like, I read that, I was like, huh? I actually circled it, and when I was reading, I'm like, what? <laughs> okay, but that's how the man thinks. It's just not how God operates. Look at Acts 1, verse 16. Men and Peter speaking. Men and, men and brethren, the scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. And now he's going to quote Psalms 41. David wrote it down, but where did the information come from? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost said it, David wrote it down. David says, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Here it comes. He's going to write it. Now come back to Mark and Mark 12, Mark chapter 12. And Mark, he's going to nail them here and Mark about corrupting the word of God. He gets on them with just nails them. Mark 12 and look at verse 36. For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Now, this is Jesus talking in verse 35. And Jesus answered and said, and you know what Jesus said? That David said, Psalms 110 verse 1, and that's really coming from the Holy Ghost. So Jesus Christ believed that when David wrote Psalms 110 verse 1, it was really the Holy Ghost doing it. He recorded what the words of the Holy Spirit. And again, that's how we get, that's how we ought to be thinking about our Bible. The textual critics do not think that way at all. They go the opposite way. God made a mistake. We got to fix it. And we can because we are educated. We're scholarly. And off they go. If you're, you're there in Mark, if you look back at Mark 7, he's going to, he's, verse 1, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the traditions of the elders. Then he, so we already know we're going to have a confrontation here. And, and we've studied this in Matthew and Luke and in John, mostly Matthew and in Luke. But notice what the Lord does. Verse 6, he answered and said unto them. So he's going to start talking to them. Verse 7. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of, God, of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men. Verse 9, And he said unto them, full, full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Verse 13, Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do. What did they do? they doing exactly what the textual critics do to Mark 1. They've left the Word of God, and they're promoting their own viewpoint. Now come over to Mark 16. So just as they start the book of Mark with, uh, with uh, trouble, <laughs> a 
okay, with a textural issue, they are now going to end the book of Mark with a textual issue. Mark 16, you start in verse 9, and you go to the end of the chapter. The new Bibles will say that uh, it's not found in, uh, in the oldest manuscripts. It's not found... See here, let's see, the earliest manuscripts and some ancient witnesses do not have Mark 9 to verse 20. Okay? Then he says, uh, the most reliable early manuscripts conclude the Gospel of Mark at verse 8. Other manuscripts indicate various readings of the Gospel. Two of the more notable endings are printed here. Uh, the uh, New American Standard says a few late manuscript versions contain this paragraph, usually after verse 8. A few have it after, at the end of the chapter. The New King James says verses 9 to 20 are bracketed in the uh, NU text as not original. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other manuscripts of Mark contain them. Okay, so why did they take these guys out? The first set, the Mark 1, they don't even know why they took it out and replaced it. But when you come into Mark 16, there's a little more going on here now than what they suit. Now, by the way, in verse number 9, now when Jesus was ridden early, okay, Schofield's got a note mark, number 1. The passage from verse 9 to the end is not found in the two most ancient manuscripts, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, and others have it with partial omissions and variations. But it is quoted by Arrhenius and Hippolytus in the 2nd or 3rd century. So whether you're going to leave it in or not, that's up to you. But the, the thing of it is, though, is when you go in and you begin to study and research this out, there were 600 manuscripts that contain the passage, with only two leaving it out. So that's a 300 to 1 ratio. All right? And of the one, one of the two, they had erased it out of the text that it was in, according to the historians. Now, you see, he quote, uh, Schofield talks about Arrhenius, and I call him Hippolytus, Hip Hippo there. When you go into the church father's record, there's over a hundred church fathers. It's called a, a patri uh, patristic quotation that quote Mark 16, 9 to 20, use it, reference it, before the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus were ever discovered, which they're discovered in about the 4th or 5th century. And these, so, Arrhenius, uh, Arrhenius and Hippolytus here, they're second or third. There's, a, there's a, actually a hundred more quotations in that second and third century, way before they ever found Codex Sinaiticus. It's just a bunch of where, shell game. Where's the P moving it around on you? Because when you come into the end of the book of Mark here, there's things going on in the text that they have no idea on how to handle because they don't rightly divide the Bible. Okay? Look at verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, all the denominations out there, all the religious group love that. That's their missionary statement. Boom, boom, here we go. But now watch verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So the Baptist groups go crazy. Wow, there it is. There's our verse. Get saved and baptized. Believe and baptize, you're saved. But he that is believed not shall be damned. Uh-oh. They, the Baptist groups love verse 15, a little sketchy in verse 16, because wait a minute. 
Baptism isn't a part of being saved. Where? Today. But it was back then. You see, believing is the issue. It's always been the issue with God. But the, the dispensational, now I'm throwing the dispensational viewpoint in here because that's the issue. It's just like when Martin Luther uh, uh, translated the Bible into German. He wanted to throw James out because James was in conflict with Romans 4, James 2 and Romans 4, and he didn't understand how to handle that. Right? Division helps you. Verse, verse 17. And these signs shall follow them that believe. Now the charismatics are going, the Pentecostals are going crazy. Woo! We got it, we got it, we got it. In my name shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues. Uh-oh. Nah, the Pentecostals don't like that. Verse 18, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them, and they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall... See, they don't like that snake handling stuff. You know, we, we'll speak in tongues and have boom, but we don't get over in that stuff. That's hokey. They don't know how to deal with it. You hear Charles Stanley, I've heard him say on different occasions that speaking in the new tongue there, uh, you shouldn't curse anymore and swear. Once you get saved, you should speak with a new tongue. So you should knock off swearing and cursing. You, that's, that's lazy. <laughs> that's, not what he's, that's not what the passage is. But that's, they don't know how to handle the passage, so what's the easiest thing to say? Well, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, the two oldest manuscripts, didn't have it, so it shouldn't be there. And they just wipe out 9 to 20 tremendous teachings here. When we go through it in our study, it's fantastic to what's going on here. That's what they do. All of the signs and the wonders they love. They love verse 16, Believe in his baptized shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. They kind of run from that. They like the this. They like the healings. They like doing all that stuff. But yet, when it really boils down to it, the reason that they want to pull it out is they don't understand how to deal with it. You'll hear some say that the that the verses and the stuff in verse 17 and 18 are what is called the signs of an apostle, apostolic signs. The problem is with that is if you look at verse 14, afterward he had appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and unbraided them with their, what? Unbelief and hardness of heart, which they believed not them which had seen him after he. So the apostles are there, but they're in what? They're in a little bit of an unbelief situation. So now you've got to figure that out. What does that mean? By the way, you, you're going to heal the sick and cast out the devils there. In Luke, in Luke 10, he sent a group of the little flock out, 70 of them, gave them the same power to do that, you know. So the apostles here, you know, there's more. Also in the book of Acts, Peter and John and those guys do things, but other people are doing as well. You go read Philip and Stephen, they're... They're doing sign, these signs and stuff. So you can't just say it's only the apostles can do this. So then others will say, well, we, you can't do that because of unbelief, because of a lack of faith. But if you had faith, look at verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What's that? There's enough faith to believe and be baptized but then there's not enough faith to go do verse 17 and 18? So how do they have the faith to do one thing and not the faith to go do the rest of the verses? So you get nutcase, you get crazy thinking and thought lines out like that. Then they say, well, you don't have enough spiritual life going on. And you have to be spiritual to do these things. Well, that doesn't line up because the Corinthians, Paul calls them carnal. And yet, what were they doing? They're speaking in tongues. They're doing things. So you can't really, they have spiritual gifts. They had them in abundance, by the way. 
And it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that they were carnal or in unbelief. It has to do with what God's doing. What's he doing today? <laughs> Again, the real answer here isn't to wipe out the verses, but it's rather to come and say, wait a minute, dispensationally here, dispensational Bible study is indicating that this is something that's not to the church, the body of Christ. So then you have people say, oh, you hyper-dispensationalists. Hyper, take it to the far. Well, the thing is, is Dad uses a term called subtra. <laughs> Not dispensational enough. Subtra, you can look that up. But the thing is, is everybody is a dispensationalist when they come to the book. Because some things they do, some things they don't. There's never really anyone truly not a dispensationalist. Because even the Baptist groups, I've been around them, and other groups, they will do to a point and then stop. So you, you, you hear those guys, but the answer here, honest, is not, not all of this is not about you and I. It's rather about a point in time that's going to carry out, correlate out to the tribulation period when they're going to need the ability to have some physical protections in the things that they are doing. Okay? So, when you look at this stuff, they start the book of Mark with a textual problem, and then they end the book of Mark with a textual problem. And it end, they start out not believing it, and they end not believing it. And you and I, as we're going to come now, we're going to begin to look here into the book, and I'll say this again next time we get together, is we're going to look at Mark as it comes to us, as it sits on the page, as it stands. We're going to rightly divide it, and we don't have to question any of it. So as we go back to Mark 1, and as we begin to get into the text and We'll do that, this in a couple weeks. That's how we're going to look at it. That's how we're going to handle it. Because we know that we have the completed Word of God. I, I don't know if, if you ever think about that. We are the first people in all of human history to have a completed revelation of God's Word in a book for us to read it in our language. Moses didn't have it. Abraham didn't have it. Peter doesn't have it. It's only until that progressive revelation, that capstone of it comes to the, through the body of Christ, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, where he comes in and it's complete, and you don't need any other source of information. And when you understand, come back over there to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. When you and I understand, 1 Corinthians 13, when we understand and we recognize and then we therefore believe, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall be, what? Vanish away. Well, what's going to happen to the three prominent gifts there that Paul uses, because that's the three gifts the Corinthians were abusing, prophesying, tongue talk, tongues, knowledge. What's going to happen to those three? They're going to vanish away. They're going to cease. They're going to fail. Verse 9, why? For we know in part and we prophesy in part. We don't, when Paul was getting the information, he's going to get, He's going to, over a series of revelations, he's getting the information, and as he's getting it, what he does that means it's not all there to begin with. He didn't have it all in the beginning. He gets it all down through time. But watch verse 10, first word, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. That which is when the complete the completeness of the revelation is 
there. It's complete. We'll see over here in a minute in Ephesians 4. The fullness of that perfect man is there. Then what's going to happen to the gift program? It goes away. Now, look at verse 10 carefully. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. What is in part? Well, verse 9 tells us that. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. What's part is we have partial knowledge. So then what's going to do away with partial knowledge? Full knowledge. When the knowledge, complete knowledge. So when complete knowledge comes, what happens to the partial? It goes away. We don't need it. We have full knowledge. We have, and that's, that's coming from, now come over to Ephesians 4. That's coming from the completion of the Word of God. That's why Paul, before Paul ends his pen, his writing of 2 Timothy, when he puts his pen down at the end of 2 Timothy, all of the books are done. They're completed. We talked, uh, I think we talked a couple weeks ago about the late writing of John when we were, and so forth. And John doesn't write late, otherwise he's got to rewrite John 15. <laughs> okay, he's, he's, it's done. Ephesians 4, look at verse 11. And he gave, gave, past tense, some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. He gave some gifts here that are for administration and teachings and so forth. The th- question is, is when did he give them? Well, verse 8, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he let captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So when did he give these gifts? When he ascended up on high, not resurrected from the grave, but when he ascended up on high, well, in Israel's program, he's, he's registered there at the right hand of God the Father. The Holy Spirit comes there, there, but then when he interrupts that program with Paul, he does what? He gives some gifts from on high. Verse 11. He gave some apostles. That's an interesting thing. These are not the 12 apostles. These are apostles that he gave after he ascended up. Well, who would that be? Well, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, but also Barnabas was an apostle, Acts 14. Timothy and Titus and Silas, all those guys are listed out as apostles. By the way, when did he give the, the 12 apostles? Before ascension or after ascension? Before earthly ministry. Verse 12. Why did he give the gifts? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's why he gave the gifts. He gave the gifts for the perfecting, for the working and for the edifying. Verse 13. First word, till. Timing word. He gave. How long did he give this? How long did he give? Verse 11. He gave the gifts. How long did he give them? Till. We all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, what does 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 say? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. So now the scripture is what's going to perfect the man. The job still needs to be done. Verse 12 still needs to be done. Perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry and for the edifying. You just don't need a special gift to get it done. Now we have the word of God that's going to get it done. So when you come to Mark 16 and all those gift things, 
Well, there's a reason why they have that special ability, and it, and it has nothing to do with the Word of God. It has everything to do with where they're on the timeline. And again, you and I today, we have the completed Word of God, first time in hum all of human history that we have the completed revelation of God in a book for us to read. It's complete. We don't need any other sources of information. And the reason it's complete is because God's grace to us is complete and total sufficient. Therefore, his word is complete and totally sufficient to reveal his grace to us and to make it real for us. And it's found here on the pages of, the King, of a King James Bible for English-speaking people. So Mark, when we get together in a couple weeks, Mark 1, we'll start in verse 1, I promise. <laughs> Technical, textual issues. They start out not believing it, and they end not believing it. And we're not going to do that. We're going to let it sit where it is, just as we've done with Matthew and Luke and John. We're going to sit as he is the one that's going to present the Lord Jesus Christ as the servant. Here's what Jesus did. We're going to leave it sit as that and, that action word. Twelve of the sixteen chapters begin with and. Here's what he does. And he did this, and he did this. We're going to let it be that most complete picture of the chronological life of the Lord that we have. We're going to let it be that. We're not going to come over here and try to make it say something that it's not. Yank it over and be to you and I something that it's not. Okay? So, the technical now as we go down through it, we don't have to talk too much more about the, the textual issue. We can hit the road running and uh, spend the next five years, six years studying Mark. Okay? That's a joke. But it might be true. I don't know yet. We're... <laughs> I got two lessons in, and we're just introducing the book. So at least it's not uh, uh, four or five introductions like we did with Luke and so forth. So, all right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the instructions here and for the joy that's set before us that we can study your word and see all of the activity that you have done. We'll give you the praise and the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.